0: Well, we've come up to the ninth of our biographical sermons. I'm going to read a portion of 1 Samuel 25, begin at verse 21. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him, and he has repaid me evil for good. May God do so and more also to the enemies of David, if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. Now when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David, and bowed down to the ground. So she fell at his feet and said, On me, my Lord, on me let this iniquity be, and please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant, please Let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek harm for my Lord be as Nabal. And now this present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord, and evil is not found in you throughout your days. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life, but the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies, he will sling out as from the pocket of his sling, and it shall come to pass, when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you a ruler over Israel, that this will be no grief to you nor offense of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant." Then David said to Abigail, "'Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me, and blessed is your advice, and blessed are you because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely by morning light no males would have been left to Nabal.' So David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, Go in peace to your house. See, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, and we know that every part of your word is precious, is designed by your Holy Spirit for our growth. I pray that each one of us would be receptive to this word, that you would enable me to faithfully preach it, and uh, And we continue to worship you, Father, as we interact with and respond to your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we looked at an ideal woman in Proverbs 31, and we saw that ideal marriages are possible today. Not sinless marriages, but marriages that wholeheartedly embrace the ideals that God has laid down for us. Well, today we're going to look at a woman who found herself in a pretty suffocating marriage. It was anything but ideal. It was a marriage to a man who gives every appearance to me of being a narcissist. And we'll get to the details of what a narcissist looks like as we go through the passage. But Let me explain why I am not going to be touching on everything that could be touched upon. When we looked at this chapter in my life of David series back in 2011, I focused mainly on her uh, treatment, uh, her intervention, um, so to speak, but there's a whole lot more uh, to the intervention uh, to her life than this intervention. And uh, I'll mainly focus on the things we didn't look at back then. Uh, much more a complicated woman, and he's a much more complicated man than might at first uh, appear on the surface. For example, in light of the fact that verse 3 calls her a woman of good understanding, I think it's worth asking, why did a smart girl like this even get married to a man who was as bad as Nabal was? And she may have been asking herself that question as well. Uh, she may have been wondering why in the world that I'd not see his character faults before marrying him. Why? 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 And uh, if this was an arranged marriage, which it probably was, um, she may have been asking why did my parents not see these character faults in him? That maybe he was going to live up to what his name is. I don't think we can think of her parents as being mean spirited only being about uh, you know the money that was in the arrangement. Uh, because the birth of this girl appears to have brought them great joy, if we can see anything from the meaning of her name. Abigail means a a father's joy. And so it appears she was his pride and joy. And from the limited data that we have in the text, it appears that both Nabal, which is the Hebrew pronunciation of Nabal, uh, but both Nabal and uh, Abigail came from pretty good stock. In fact, it may be that both Abigail and her parents overlooked, or at least didn't notice, Naval's character issues because he had enough other good things going on that maybe these were somewhat hidden. It certainly happened to my aunt. And though we aren't told why this mismatch happened, I don't think we should be surprised. We see this kind of thing happening in modern days uh, quite frequently. There are many Abigails who married somebody that they later had much regrets about. Perhaps he was charming. Many modern Nabals can be charming when they need to be charming, okay? Perhaps she deliberately ignored the telltale signs of his bad character because she wanted to be married to him because of handsomeness or charm or wealth or fine parents or other things that could on the surface be uh, good qualities. Uh, Sometimes women think that the bad characteristics that they do notice may work themselves out. I've known at least a few women who fell madly in love with a Nabal and even against sound advice married him despite nagging doubts. In their minds, peripheral things trumped important things. So I I, want to just think a little bit about what are some of the peripheral things that make both men and women turn down a fantastic spouse and instead um, marry somebody that they ought not to. They have chosen a Nabal. Good looks is one of them. From my perspective, good looks should never, ever be a central reason for marrying someone. It really should not. Some of the loveliest and godliest people that I know are not uh, good-looking, but they have made fantastic, loyal, loving spouses throughout their lives. Now, don't ask me who those not good-looking people are, I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) Um, Charm is another attribute that fools both parents and young people. Narcissists know how to pour on the charm. Uh, The man that my aunt married could pour on the charm when he needed to, you know. He sang in the choir, attended church faithfully, um, served. He looked like every bit of a good Christian to many people. He was Mr. Prince Charming, and so when he asked her if uh, she would marry him, uh, she said yes without ever investigating his background or his uh, character. And the week after the wedding, he quit going to church, and he told her, oh, I just pretended to be a Christian to make sure I got a good wife. Uh, He was quite upfront with her, and he was a narcissistic nabal his whole life. It was a miserable marriage, and my aunt uh, handled that, I think, in a stellar way. She was an Abigail in many ways. IQ is another thing that some people look to. I don't know why, but there are some men and women who are just wowed by brilliance. But here's the thing, some of the smartest people I know lack patience, humility, self-control, lack of work ethic. I mean, they're very lazy, and part of it may be because they can get grades so easily that they spend most of their time goofing off, and it's what they do when they're goofing off that reveals more about them than their good grades do. Anyway, uh, I view high IQ as being peripheral. Some people will turn down a good spouse of his or her parents are hard to get along with. Or the opposite can happen. Some people will marry a spouse because the parents are gems. Verse 3 says that Nabal was from the house of Caleb, a very godly and prestigious line in Judah. And um, uh, Nabal obviously was not following in his ancestors' uh, footsteps. Now, granted, I have often wondered what kind of a parent would name his uh, son Fool, uh, which is what Nabal means, but there are a lot of people who think, you know, it wasn't really the parent, this is uh, maybe the nickname that was given by servants or those who were close to him. I'm not sure I can settle that debate. Wealth and success in business can make some people feel this man is a match. It's actually one of the faulty qualifications that many churches use for for elders in their churches. This man must be pretty good. He's an incredible businessman. Verse 2 says, Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Obviously, a successful businessman. But I consider money to be peripheral. It's really a non-essential, assuming, of course, that this person can support Uh, a family. Know what is important and what is optional when looking for a spouse. And I really encourage young gals and young uh, girls to be very prayerful and very rational in their search for a spouse. I highly recommend that you use your parents. Lean heavily on your parents, on your elders, on other friends. Try to take the emotion out of the decision making. Get objective uh, opinions from people who will be honest. Uh, sometimes having more than one set of eyes can keep you from marrying Nabal. By the way, I won't get into it today, but it's not just uh, men who can be narcissists. Uh, There are some women out there who are miserable to live with as well. But we're going to be focusing on her husband. What kind of a marriage did she have? Well, if wealth is your idea of being well-married, she was well-married. She had the comforts of life, She probably lived in an upscale neighborhood, had a great house, had the nicest labor-saving devices, all of the conveniences of life. Narcissists are big on image with the outside world. They want to look good, and they avoid shame at all costs, at least in front of those whom they want to impress outside. They want to make sure that their wives will make a good impression upon the world. And so narcissists are not opposed to spending a lot of money if they can get something from that. When you look at the amount of food that Abigail was able to bring to David and his men on such short notice, it shows substantial stores of wealth were behind that. Verse 2 says he was very rich, not just rich, but very rich. Uh, he had 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats, plenty to make, cheese and other dairy products to sell to others. From verse 4, we learn that he had a business of trading wool from his 3,000 sheep. Uh, from verse 18, he appears to have had orchards, vineyards and grain, grain fields and such surplus that he was able to trade, probably trading wine and figs and, and uh, grain with others. In verse 18, we see that the food and the dainties that he and his guests consumed constituted a feast like a king would put on, like a king would have. That show of generosity is also a part of narcissism because it helps to conceal uh, who he really is. And so she definitely had the comforts of life. And if she had complained to any of her friends about her miserable marriage, They probably would have responded to her, what are you talking about? You've got it good, lady. Uh, They've obviously not lived with a narcissist. She was also married into the clan of Caleb, according to verse 3. So there was prestige as well because Caleb was an incredible man of faith. This was an esteemed clan in Judah that was responsible for the founding of David's hometown of Bethlehem, according to 1 Chronicles 2 verse 51. So if you read in the commentaries, it'll say uh, that this probably indicates that David was a kinsman of Nabal. Uh, Again, if you look at her family background, Nabal's family background, it might have appeared that she had it good, but the text indicates otherwise. Verse 3 says, The name of the man was Nabal. And the name of his wife, Abigail, and she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. But the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. Wow. Harsh and evil in his doings. I mean, that would be hard enough to live with. By the way, charming people can become harsh as soon as they've gotten what they wanted as their prize. But along with harsh words and lawless actions, we discover as we read through this story that he was arrogant, insensitive, self-centered, lacking in discipline, demeaning, lacking empathy, and those who were closest to him found this out. They found it out the hard way, like the servant. Uh, In verse uh, 17, who tells Abigail, For he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. Now, literally, it says, For he is such a son of Belial that one cannot speak to him. There are differences of view on what a son of Belial is. Uh, Some people say it's a worthless fellow. Some people say it's a scoundrel. Uh, Some people say it means that he's a son of Satan or an unbeliever. Uh, whatever the meaning of that phrase, every time it is used, it describes a person who was very, very difficult to live with. Okay? Um, he's likely not going to beat you, um, probably not going to be any physical harm, but you will suffer under his manipulative, demeaning, and harsh ways. And we'll be seeing shortly that Nabal has a lot of the earmarks of a narcissist. By the way, I do not, and I want, to emphasize this. I do not agree with uh, how psychologists approach uh, narcissism, con- consider it a, like a, almost a disease or a condition that people cannot uh, uh, get a cure for. Uh, I believe it is a sin response that is learned, and it's coupled. If you look in um, in 2 Corinthians 6.15, you will see Paul defining the word Belial. He uses it as, as a synonym for Satan or the demonic. And so... I believe that narcissism is sinful behavior that can be confronted, repented of, and delivered from. And it probably does take some deliverance because narcissists tend to be completely blind uh, to their own faults, uh, to demonic blindness. But the bottom line is that there was no excuse for it in the ball, and there is no excuse for it today. Anyway, before I get into the story here, let me give you some background on how David and his men had risked their lives to save the likes of Nabal in the past. In chapter 23, the Philistines had swept through the area, pillaging the produce and the livestock in the region of Cala, which would have included Carmel and Ma'on, 18 miles to the southeast. I mean, Nabal's flocks would have been right in the pathway of where the Philistines had come through. Well, the fortified city of Kayla asked David, and it's the only fortified city. They asked Calah, uh, David, excuse me, to come and to rescue uh, them. They, they knew about David's exploits. He came, he rescued the men of Kayla, returned the goods that the Philistines had stolen "...to those from whom they had been stolen." And this means to me that Nabal owed David big time. He owed him the return of all of these flocks. But narcissists don't see it that way. You always owe them. It's just one of their defining marks. And we'll be listing some other characteristics as we go through. Anyway, in the last part of chapter 23, David was in the area of Nabal uh, where his flocks were... He returns there in chapter 25, and then Nabal's servants tell Abigail in verses 15 through 16 that those men protected all that belonged to Nabal from Philistine attack. They said, but the men were very good to us, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us both by night and day, all the time we were with them keeping the sheep. So David's men constantly protected everything that Nabal um, owned. And as a neighborhood watch, it was a militia watch, armed with a neighborhood watch, right, David felt it was only fair for his men to enjoy the feast along with Nabal's servants because they had really been doing the work of servants. Verses 4 through 9, When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name." And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, Peace be to you, peace to your house, and peace to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers. Your shepherds were with us, and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the while they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please, give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son David. So when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David and waited. Now, here are four reasons why I think that that request was perfectly legitimate. First, Nabal owed uh, David for the return of his flocks from the Philistines. Uh, Second, Nabal owed the ongoing safety of his flocks to David. Third, it was a festival day when God's law itself required the rich to bless the poor, and these people were all refugees from Saul. They were definitely poor, definitely qualified. And then fourth, the protocol of eastern hospitality made this uh, request quite proper. Knowing Nabal's character, David had probably had numerous run-ins with Nabal in the past. He was, after all, related to him and from the same area. But Nabal's insensitive, demeaning, dismissive reaction to David's messengers was the last straw, and David blew up in anger. And in some senses, you can understand his blowing up. Even though he repents of it, it's a sin that he, he repents of, you can totally understand why he blew up. But Nabal's words to the messengers give you a little bit of an idea of what Abigail herself probably had to put up with day in and day out. And I think we need to understand these kinds of things to appreciate the struggles that Abigails of today go through. They need prayer, they need support, they need counsel, they need encouragement. It's a very, very tough position to be in. Now let's examine his speech first starting at verse 10. Then Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David, and who is the son of Jesse? Now this is very disingenuous because Nabal could not possibly have not known David. Absolutely impossible. Uh, David's dad was a prominent neighbor of Nabal. Uh, Probably would have been plenty of business deals going on between them. And when David worked for Saul... David became a hero throughout the land of Israel, Scripture says, a man who had repeatedly defeated the Philistines on behalf of Israel, and even in the past year, David had rescued and returned Nabal's sheep. He could not have not known that. Uh, later we'll see that Abigail knew of all of his exploits and even knew that David had been anointed to be king. She knew that. And so To say who is David is dishonest, demeaning, and dismissive. He goes on, There are many servants nowadays who break away each one from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I've killed for my shearers and give it to men when I do not know where they are from? Now, we've already looked at some characteristics uh, of narcissists. This little speech hints at seven more. The first is lack of empathy. Narcissists expect everyone to think like them and seldom give any thought to the feelings of other people. Even though they can be charming, their charm is only to win things for themselves. They have an utter lack of empathy. In fact, if they see fear in their wife or their wife is begging or showing humility or, uh, or uh, apologizing, many times they will misinterpret that as an attack. Uh, they often misread the emotions of another person. It's very hard to win with a narcissist because of their lack of ability to empathize. Second common characteristic is selfishness. And I mentioned earlier why that could be totally consistent with occasional lavish generosity and charm. But narcissists tend to be selfish and self-absorbed, much like Nabal was in this speech. Third, superiority and entitlement and that's obvious on the surface, does not need explanation. Fourth, narcissists often take advantage of the service and kindness of others with no sense of owing them anything. There's no social sense of reciprocity, okay? They're willing to keep taking and taking and taking other sacrificial uh, services, even if it seems socially unacceptable to other people. I know it's a strange characteristic, but I've seen this uh, myself many times. They tend to be users. Okay. Fifth, they often behave in an arrogant or haughty manner, coming across as conceited, boastful, and pretentious. Sixth, if a word, action, or even facial expression does not serve their perceived needs, they often react in anger, at least with those that they're closest to. And then finally. Even though narcissists are highly sensitive to perceived threats and rejection, they strangely cues that they have offended other people. They completely miss those cues. For a Nabal to offend an army of 600 men is a pretty serious thing. It is not good. But he goes on with his party in the rest of this chapter, totally oblivious of the fact that he's offended David and his men. He doesn't even realize that he is in, in danger at all. So narcissists may look normal at first, but when you get close to them, you begin seeing some very strange characteristics, and there's more that we won't get into today. And he could have read the body language of these men turning on their heels, but he doesn't. Now, one of the servants certainly did, but Nabal is clueless, verses 12 through 13. So David's young men turned on their heels and went back, and they came and told him all these words. Then David said to his men, Every man gird on his sword, so every man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword, and about four hundred men went with David, and two hundred stayed with the supplies. And so now the whole household is in danger. And in verses 14 through 35, we have the intervention that we looked at back in 2011. I'm not going to go nearly as in-depth as I did in all of the ins and outs, but the first person to intervene was the servant, verses 14 through 17. Now, one of the young men told Abigail and Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. But the men were very good to us, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us, both by night and day, all the time that we were with them keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know and consider what you will do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his household, for he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. First, he told on the ball. That is not gossip. Okay, gossip is sharing negative information about a person to somebody who's not involved in the problem and certainly not part of the solution. She was definitely part of the solution. And in my previous sermon, I went into all of the difficulties that go into navigating something like that. Second difficult thing that both servants and wives need to navigate is learning to become comfortable with knowing where to draw the line between legitimate submission, which is a good thing, and enabling, which is not a good thing. Now, our instinct should be submission. But when submission turns into enabling, we have crossed the line. We have become guilty of the sin ourselves. We may not have committed it, but we've become guilty by enabling. This is why it's both Ananias and Sapphira who are judged because she went along uh, with his sin. Many wives are guilty of enabling their husbands entrenched and unrepented sin habits like drunkenness, prolonged porn use, Uh, addiction to meth, etc. And in my previous sermon, I went into great detail on what kinds of situations servants and wives are definitely warranted by the Scripture to engage in intervention, interposition. It's tricky. It is definitely not easy, but I dealt with those uh, tricky situations, I think, adequately in those sermons. Verse 14 indicates that action had to be taken immediately because the time was short. There was no time for alternative approaches says, look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master. Now, the wilderness is not very far away, and based upon the body language of of, uh, these men, they knew they were in trouble if they didn't do something right away. Next, this intervention was needed because a gross injustice had happened to David, and I've already gone into that. Fifth thing we see here is that intervention was needed because of the danger of permanent disaster. This was not a case of petty meddling. Verse 17 says, now therefore no one consider what you will do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his household. And so I would just say from this, when we're intervening in the lives of people, we need to make sure it's very, very serious. It's not just for trivial uh, issues. Here, disaster was hanging over everyone's heads, and it took more than one head to figure things out. And in my previous sermons, I dealt with the difference between needless conflict an absolutely essential intervention. The last reason intervention was needed was because no one could reason with Nabal. Verse 17 goes on to say, for he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. Now, obviously, Nabal would have been the one to reason with. That would be the ideal. But if they had taken the time to do that, everyone would be dead, including Nabal. Drunks usually reject the notion that they have a problem. Meth users convince themselves they're taking the drug responsibly and they're not a danger to anybody. In fact, every meth user that I have counseled, I have had to concurrently deal with lying because every one of them were notorious liars, putting off lying at the same time as uh, putting off uh, their addiction. Porn users deceive themselves and others into thinking they don't have a problem. And so like a drunk who didn't want help, Nabal didn't want help. So those were six reasons why the intervention was absolutely necessary. Intervention should be a last resort, but there are times when it is necessary for a wife to do just like Abigail did. Now let's move on to the nature of the intervention. First, it involved others. Verse 19, and she said to her servants, go before me, see I am coming after you. And there were reasons for that i won't get into but the main point is she involved others in her intervention i think there's a great deal of wisdom in that second involved personal presence she says i am coming after you she doesn't make other people do her dirty work for her makes me very angry when i hear of these government state government interventions into a family you know cps comes into the family and creates absolute havoc and harm because of an anonymous tip, right? And then it turns out the anonymous tip was wrong, but the damage has already been done. Okay, that is absolutely uh, wrong. If you are not willing to get personally involved, forget it. Don't let somebody else do your dirty work. Uh, They can help, but that does not get you off the hook. And when you get to her speech, you realize how imperative her personal presence was she gives an absolutely amazing speech. In fact, it is so amazing, it's one of the reasons why uh, Jews consider uh, her to be one of the seven female prophets of the Old Testament, and Roman Catholics have long considered Abigail to be a prophetess. Uh, You know, I don't know what to think about that. I can see some of the evidences that they bring up. I'm not even going to deal with that today. Um, But the point is, There was a personal presence that made a difference. She was not an anonymous whistleblower. She was willing to face Nabal later in the chapter and say exactly what she did, and she was certainly willing to face David. Both Nabal and David needed intervention, and she had a personal presence with both of them. Third, it bypassed normal protocols. The last phrase of verse 19 says, but she did not tell her husband Nabal. If she had told him he and everyone else would have died. So again, it emphasizes that interventions are not standard procedures. They happen when nothing else will work. Fourth, it was dangerous for her to do this. Look at verses 20 through 22. So it was, as she rode on the donkey, that she went down under cover of the hill, and there were David and his men coming down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has of the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him, and he has repaid me evil for good. May God do so and more also to the enemies of David. It's interesting that he doesn't say may God do to me (laughs) on this vow, but may God do so and more also to the enemies of David if I leave one male of all who belongs to him by morning light. So David is really, really angry, and she's walking into something pretty dangerous. And it was going to take tact, humility, graciousness, and wisdom to diffuse the emotion in the air. Not everybody is equally gifted at interventions. Some people actually make the problem worse because they're introducing their own emotion into the environment. And that's why Galatians 6.1 says that with most interventions, it's good if you bring along a spiritually mature person with you. But most interventions do have an element of danger. Part of the danger may be, well, it may be just a permanent rift, but uh, sometimes it can be much more dangerous. Uh, On more than one occasion I've had uh, people uh, threaten and one case try to kill me because of intervening, but I felt I absolutely had to for the sake of the wife. But I do want to point out that some interventions are sinful. David probably thinks of himself as engaging in an intervention. David was attempting an intervention on behalf of his 600 men who had been hurt and insulted and robbed, so he no doubt thinks he's doing a good thing. But David's attempt at intervention was ungodly, prideful, destructive, flowed from anger, did not flow from love, and its design was to destroy people, not to deal with problems. In fact, it would have created even more problems. And so on at least five levels, it was ungodly. And part of the issue was that David went into the problem thinking of these people as his enemies. Your intervention will not be successful if you do that. Your bad attitudes will ooze out and destroy the effectiveness of your peacemaking. Abigail's intervention was the exact opposite. Let's take a look at why she was so successful. And if you want more details on this, you can look at the sermons in 2011. Why was she successful? Well, her speech, which is the longest recorded speech from a woman in the Bible, is a fantastic example of both interposition and peacemaking. She stopped a whole army of 400 angry men in their tracks. They were mad. They were out for blood, yet she stopped them in their tracks. How on earth did she do that? Well, there are two parts to the answer. First part is God helped her. I'm sure she was praying like mad when she went into uh, this situation. Ultimately, only God can change people's hearts. Only God can bless interpositions and attempts at peacemaking, and we should go into them with prayer and fasting. I have seen people do all of the right things, and uh, yet they were not successful. We need God's aid. But I do want to look at the characteristics of her peacemaking. Each of these 15 points, I think, are important to giving her success. First, she went into this peacemaking with no arrogance or pride showing, beginning with verse 23. Now, when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David, and bowed down to the ground. So she fell at his feet and sat. Now, this was a position of respect as well as of pleading. Now, granted, her husband's life was in danger, uh, but when you couple this posture together with her whole speech, you can see she had genuine humility. When pride is present, it's so easy for anger to flare and to destroy the whole process. When pride is present, uh, it is so easy to see everybody else's fault and be totally blind to your own fault. Um... I don't think she had uh, any fault in this herself, and yet her humility enabled her to see things from David's perspective. You can't do that if you've got pride. Humility gives you new eyes to see conflicts in a totally new way. And this is why Galatians chapter 6 says that before we even go into a conflict situation like that, we need to examine our own weaknesses and our own tendencies. This basically doing what Jesus said is taking the beam out of our own eye first. So, by the way, I I should point out you can start off very, very humble. (laughs) And after dealing with the, the orneriness, and uh, the, uh, the pride and the anger of other people, the peacemaker himself can start putting off that humility and begin to get angry. And before you know it, he's complicated the whole situation, and he's part of the problem. You know, it's now a competition between the peacemaker and one or more of those other people, and because of his own anger, he's completely spoiled things. So humility is a very, very critical point. second thing that we see is that she was willing to take heat so that others could be saved. She didn't deserve the heat, but she's willing to take it. Take a look at verse 24. She says, on me, my Lord, on me, let this iniquity be. In other words, she is willing to suffer the consequences for Nabal's iniquity. And this is absolutely remarkable. This shows the degree of love that she has for her despicable husband, or at least for the servants. Some commentators have said that this is simply a false taking of blame, like the wives of many narcissists have learned to do in order to survive. And that may be, initially, that's what I had wondered, but let me explain why I think she's only taking the heat and not the blame, and not look, overlooking her husband's bad behavior. First, this is not blind love, because she is able to discuss his sin, and discuss it quite frankly, it's quite clear later in her speech she sees him as being at fault. Him, okay? So that's the first reason I say she's taking the heat or the consequences of the iniquity, not the blame. Second, this is not enabling love, because we've already seen she's doing the opposite of enabling. She's intervening even without his permission. Third, this is not doormat passivity. She is anything but passive. And so I side with those who say, this is a God-given love that cares so much about others, she's willing to suffer and take risks on their behalf. Much like the Apostle Paul in Romans 9 said that he, and he, he knew people would have a hard time believing it, so three times he says, I'm telling the truth. He was wishing that he could be accursed, that means bearing the penalty of iniquity, right? He wished he could be accursed so that he could save his brethren almost identical. She might suffer David's wrath. She would surely suffer Nabal's wrath when she returned. Peacemaking often is uncomfortable, and family members often don't appreciate enough that Abigails often take the heat so that their children don't have to, okay? But there's only so much that an Abigail can do without making matters worse, so be sympathetic if Abigails don't always get it perfectly. Third thing that I see in Abigail is that she appeals to David rather than making demands of David. Now granted, she's not in a very good position to be making uh, demands, uh, even if she was a prophetess, but her approach is the approach that is most likely to gain a hearing. Abigail wisely says, And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. And she has this language of appeal all the way through the, the speech. Please let your maidservant. If a guy's already so mad at you that he doesn't want to listen, you know, then saying please listen to what a friend has to say is much more likely to break through the anger uh, than saying what is the matter with you? You know, get over this. Stop this nonsense. Um, There is a place for both approaches, but let me assure you, there are good reasons why a soft appeal is almost always the policy that good peacemakers make. A um, soft answer turns away wrath peacemaker is not only concerned about speaking the truth, she does do that, but she's also concerned about the way the truth is speaking, and the motive of this speaking, and the context. After all, she's talking with armed men, right? This is not exactly the context, to get too blunt. Now, it's not as if she's covering for Nabal's sin, not at all. Verse 25 says, please let not my lord regard this scoundrel Nabal, for as it As his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. So she is saying, look, I agree with you that Nabal is in the wrong here. I mean, everyone knows that Nabal's character is not good. I'm not going to cover for him, but this is not the way to deal with it. That's in essence what she is saying. And you might think that she's now taking sides with David, but the reality is that she points out sin in both men. Take a look, for example, at the third clause in verse 26. She describes what David is attempting to do as coming to bloodshed and avenging yourself with your own hand. And then in verse 31, she makes it clear uh, that it would be shedding blood without a cause. In other words, it would be murder. Uh, There would have been no justification for this slaughter. And so she does not ignore the sin of either one. And I think this is very, very important in peacemaking. If you minimize the sin of one party, the other party is not going to take any of your recommendations seriously they're going to feel you're prejudiced, you're unfair. The fifth thing that I see here is in the second clause of verse 25, but I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. So she's giving new information to David and encouraging David to look at all angles of the problem. There's more than just the involved here. She's in effect saying, have you considered my involvement? Did you realize I didn't know anything about this? When there's a clash of personalities, both parties tend to have tunnel vision, and they have a hard time seeing other possible explanations and other possible solutions or even other possible collateral damage. And so one of the jobs of a peacemaker is to inject new information into the discussion that the two parties have not yet seen. In verse 26, we see that Abigail is seeking to be impartial. Now, therefore, my Lord as the Lord, that's Jehovah, lives, and as your soul lives. So she is taking an oath of truthfulness here. Her goal is not to manipulate the outcome. Her goal is not to say anything that's needed to get the confrontation down a little notch or two. Uh, That's what some people do. And this is the problem that I have with the the movie The Negotiator, uh, that uh, you can say anything so long as the outcome is okay. Now, that's not biblical at all. What she is going to say is going to be fair and impartial, and it's going to be the truth no matter what the outcome. In verse 26, she goes on to say, "'Since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed.'" Is this naive optimism? Uh, Most commentators say she's assuming that David will do the right thing uh, once he understands the situation, so she's assuming the best about him. And it may be, as others have assumed— that this was a prophetic utterance. You know, he's going to, she she makes it as a statement. But either way, it still highlights that when we assume the best about others, we often get the best. And when we assume the worst about others, we often get the worst. It's almost self-fulfilling prophecy. But when you have two believers who are indwelt by the Spirit of God, how much more should we have a 1 Corinthians 13 love that believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, believing all things is not naivete. The same chapter says that love rejoices in the truth. It does not tell a lie. It assumes the best where possible, but it does not tell a lie. And so Abigail tells the truth as she sees it with David, even if it might be offensive to David. She's already couched her language in such tactfulness humility and grace is going to be much easier for David to swallow but her peacemaking efforts did not overlook the seriousness of David's sins and we'll get to that in a bit and it's in having pointed out the sins of both David and Nabal that she could be taken seriously when she sides with David in the overall scheme of things and that's the next point. In other words, she's not engaged here in bootlicking. She is interested in glorifying God in this process, and so it's appropriate to take sides so long as in the process you're seeking to please the Lord. Now, people will accuse you, like, whose side are you on here? And uh, your response can be that I'm for both of you, but it's really God's Word that we need to be siding with. It's uh, God that we need to be on His side, not uh, siding with one of you. So if you're trying to side with God, then when you disagree with either person or both of them, it'll not be perceived as a personal rejection quite as easily. Of course, if, if it's a the ball, it doesn't matter how good you're at, you do, they're probably not going to receive it apart from God's grace. But ultimately, that doesn't matter. It's God that you're pleasing. In verse 27, she says, and now this present, which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. So she's providing the thing that her husband refused to provide. And peacemaking is not simply about getting two sides to bury the hatchet. It's about making sure that injustices are rectified. Uh, Not everybody can achieve this, but since she could, she did. In verse 28, she asked forgiveness for even her unintentional oversight, or possibly for intruding on him in this uninvited way. You can take it either way. Now she had already insisted, she didn't know that the messengers had come and had asked for consideration, and actually, I won't get into, but she's tiptoeing, t- tip-toeing through some pretty major landmines, I guess, is what you'd call it. And we dealt with those in, in the previous uh, sermons. Uh, it takes tact. You've got to be very delicate in the way in which you enter into these kinds of situations. And it's so easy for one misto- misspoken word to hijack the conversation, emotions to flare again. And this is why we need to bathe these things in prayer. The 12th thing that I see is that she affirms what is good in David. And by doing this, she actually will add power to her point that he could lose all of this if uh, he insists on acting rashly. Basically, you've got such a good reputation, it's all going to be blown up up in this one act. So here are three things that she says she appreciates about David. First of all, she affirms that she believes God's promises that he will indeed be king. She's in in agreement with these God-given promises. Verse 28 goes on to say, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house. He will be king, but as she will shortly point out, That carries with it responsibilities to act consistently with that fact. Second, she appreciates the fact that David has been very sacrificial for the Lord. She says, because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord. Now again, that's a subtle reminder that he needs to continue thinking about serving the Lord rather than serving his pride, but she's saying it positively. Up until this time, you've certainly been serving the Lord faithfully, and I appreciate that about you third thing that she appreciates is that David has had an impeccable reputation. She says that evil is not found in you throughout your days, and the implication will soon be made. You could lose that good reputation if you follow through on your plan. So think about your good reputation. So even the good in David that she mentions is going to be leveraged to make her point. But the next two points give two more ways that she seeks to be positive about David before launching into why what he's about to do is really, really wrong. She shows sympathy for the difficult straits that David found himself in. He really was in a tough position. He was totally, totally dependent upon the goodwill of others. So she says, yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life. So that's referring to Saul. So she shows sympathy and understanding for his tough status. Sympathy can be crucial component of of peacemaking. Even people who are in the wrong sometimes have gotten into the wrong because of tough situations, and we can appreciate that and sympathize with them before showing them a better way of handling things. But, and this is the next point, even given his tough situation, there is still no excuse. Instead, she encourages David to look to God in faith during this trying situation. David, too, has had to deal with a narcissist, King Saul, And uh, this is the second part of verse 29 through verse 30. She says, But the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies he will sling out, as from the pocket of a sling. And it shall come to pass, when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, and has appointed you ruler over Israel, etc. Even though it doesn't look like those promises are being fulfilled, she has faith that they will be. And again, all of these remarkable statements may possibly be prophetic statements. But either way, the point is, she encourages David to have faith that they will be fulfilled. And we spent a lot of time looking at those beautiful images in 2011. So she affirms God will protect David like a treasure. He's going to sling his enemies out, and he will eventually become king. Now here is something I want you to consider. Of the previous 14 points we've just gone through... Uh, at least 12 of them don't deal directly with David's sin. I, I, I find that very interesting. David's sin is the crisis that needs to be dealt with, and yet it's the smallest portion of what she speaks about. There's a sense in which all of the other points are preliminary to pointing out the stupidity of what David is about to do. It's giving perspective, and once he has perspective, it'll be easier to convince him. But now comes the bitter medicine in verse 31. And let's look at it phrase by phrase. Even this is worded very carefully. She says that she has interposed herself because she does not want David to later have to regret this action. So that means she's still for David, even though she disagrees with what he's doing. She says that this will be no grief to you, nor offensive of heart to my Lord. This is not going to be something you're going to be proud of. In fact, you're going to grieve over it and find it to be an offense. So grief, is the result of his sin, and offense is the character of his sin. But interestingly, she's trying to have him look at it from his own future perspective. In the future, you're going to regret this. And peacemakers have to give perspective. Peacemakers try to get the parties to look at the problem from the other person's perspective, and from onlookers' perspective, and from God's perspective, and even from their own future perspective. What's the trajectory of this? What's it going to look like in the future? So she tries to convince him he will grieve over it and it will be something offensive to his heart. Next, she tries to get him to see the seriousness of the sin in its own right. And here's what he's going to regret. She says, Either that you have shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself. The first serious charge was he was about to shed blood without cause. That's a euphemistic way of speaking of murder killing somebody in self-defense is with cause, that's why it's not murder, right? But unless the Bible specifically authorizes the spilling of blood, you have engaged in murder if you kill someone. And as David himself had pointed out previously, the civil magistrate alone can spill blood for vengeance purposes, you know, getting even. can't do that personally. Self-defense, yes but vengeance, no. In the previous chapter, David had written, very, very interesting, the imprecatory psalm, Psalm 35, against all those who spill blood without cause. Same thing as here. So he pronounced uh, curses on murderers, and that means that in the time period of chapter 24, he hated the very thing that he's now about to do. He himself would be under the curse of Psalm 35. In Psalm 7, he would later pronounce a curse upon himself if he had spilled blood without cause. So this is a serious sin, and she's seeking to point out the seriousness of that sin. The second thing she is accusing him of is acting as a revolutionary, or that my Lord has avenged himself. When the New Testament commands us to not take vengeance but uh, uh, rather to love our enemies, it's actually quoting the Old Testament. It's quoting from Deuteronomy 32 and from other passages, and I think this would have stuck to David like glue because he had spent so much of the time in the previous chapters convincing his men of the very same thing, exactly the same thing, that it's wrong for private citizens to take vengeance. He refused to raise the sword against Saul. He refused to take out Doeg, even though he suspected that Doeg would tell Saul of his whereabouts. He had been a model of the reformed principle of self-control under tyranny, and he was about to let it all go out the window with one revolutionary act of vengeance. If he had killed Nabal and his men, he would be no better than Saul, and it would have been hypocritical for him to write those psalms against Saul. Uh, My new booklet, The Divine Right of um, Resistance, goes into when it's legitimate, when it's not legitimate to resist civil government. The last thing that she mentions is that there are innocent people who can be hurt when people take vengeance into their own hands. In other words, collateral damage. And uh, peacemakers try to give perspective on collateral damage. In this case, she would be one of the ones who would have suffered at David's hands. So she says, but when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. Now, of course, she's been so gracious and so humble in her treaty, it made it much more easy for David to respond humbly. And because I went in-depth on David's response in 2011, I'm just going to barely mention ten aspects of what it what constitutes a proper response to rebuke. How can we be godly in our response? First, David listens and responds in verse 32. Proverbs calls us to avoid abusing the peacemaker, slamming the door on the peacemaker, or ignoring him. Second, he rejoiced at her rebuke. He says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. Now exclamation marks, our interpretation granted, but I think in this case very appropriate. It shows the, 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 the emotional strength of his rejoicing there. Third, he thanked her for the rebuke. Now that's hard for pride to do. He says in verse 33, and blessed is your advice and blessed are you. Fourth, he clearly named his sin and repented of it in front of all of his men in verse 33, because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. So he repeats back the precise language that he had been reproved with, and he repented of that sin. And since he sinned in front of his men, he repents in front of all of his men. This is a habit that we tried to instill in our children and model to our children when they were young to specify exactly what it is we're repenting of and not just say, you know, I'm sorry. Fifth, he was God-centered in his repentance. He says in verse 34, for indeed as the Lord God of Israel lives who has kept me back. Some confessions of sin are only trying to get people off your back. They're just horizontal. But Uh, The moment God is brought into the equation, you tend to think differently, often more accurately. I don't know how many times I have seen people debating each other and not giving an inch on whether they're wrong or not, and then we go to prayer and all of a sudden this person who hasn't recognized his sin is repenting of his sin before the Lord. It's an interesting thing when you bring God into the equation. sixth, he affirmed the seriousness of his sin. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely by morning light no males would have been left to Nabal. So he's admitting he would have been guilty not only of taking vengeance on Nabal, but of genocide, of hurting her. So it's no wonder he had this threefold blessing in verses 32 through 33. This is not simple, hey, if I offended you, I'm sorry. That's not repentance. It's owning sin, naming it, describing the seriousness of it, repenting of it. Seventh, he didn't downplay the overtures of peace that she had given. Verse 35 says, so David received from her hand what she had brought him. She had extended an olive branch, and uh, David received it. And failure to do so could have short-circuited the true reconciliation. If he had refused to give to "Ah, don't worry about it, there would still have been tension. Eighth, he affirmed full Restoration. Verse 35 goes on to say, go in peace to your house. Now, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom, and it's more than just inward peace. It's full restoration. That's the idea. In the book, The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy, he shows that learning how to be civil with each other is not enough. God's grace should restore fellowship and ideally even make the relationship better than before, if possible. Ninth, he committed himself in verse 35 to following through on his repentance. There's going to be action. Verse 35 goes on to say, see, I have heeded your voice. ESV translates it, I have obeyed your voice. And maybe it, they think it was prophecy, I don't know. However you translate it, David was committing himself to follow through with action. And in tenth, he affirmed the fact that he respected Abigail. I have heeded your voice and respected your person. Uh, Some believe that this, again, was an acknowledgment that she was a prophetess. Others uh, believe it was simply an affirmation. He respected her very much. Either way, it still affirms the same point. I think it's good after a tense confrontation to affirm respect for the person who has confronted you because it is hard to bring rebuke. Well, maybe not for some people. I've always found it very, very hard. And so to say, thank you for bringing this to my attention, I respect you very much for having the courage to do that, I think goes a long ways toward normalizing relationships. Now in verses 36 through 38, we have one more confrontation that needs to happen. She needs to let Nabal know what she has done and that she has saved his skin. She acted behind his back, but that's not her persona. In verse 36, she discovers that he's drunk, Totally oblivious to the dangers, and so she decides wisely. I think I better wait till he's thinking more clearly. Verse 36. Now Abigail went to Nabal, and there he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. Therefore, she told him nothing, little or much, until morning light. So it was in the morning when the wine had gone from Nabal, and his wife had told him these things that his heart died within him, and he became like a stone. Then it happened after about 10 days that the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Now this paragraph shows some of Nabal's other character issues. Poor steward of money, he's drunk, lavish with others while ignoring his wife. I mean, does he not even notice that his wife is gone? Uh, You know, anyway, anyone who's had an addict for a relative knows the constant stress this places on a wife. Now some people point out that the Achilles heel that a narcissist has is his shame, And when Nabal realizes the extent to which he has already been publicly exposed it produced such stress in Nabal that he stroked out and went into a coma, dying 10 days later. It seems to be a direct result of hearing this news. Now, by the way, this is not saying you guys should try to stroke out your husbands, you know, Uh, that's not the application. Um, But it's perfectly appropriate for Abigail to tell him what happened, even if it meant that he might blow up at her. It takes courage to be the wife of a Nabal. Despite his grouchiness, she continued to serve and manage the household throughout the marriage. Despite his refusal to live by grace, she continued to live by grace. Despite his emotional abuse, she returned love. And who took care of him during the ten days that he was comatose? Obviously somebody had to. He could not have survived for ten days. She and the servants no doubt did it. Otherwise, uh, he would have been uh, dead much earlier. But Romans 12 calls us to not become sinful in our response to the sins of others. So even this brief account gives two indications of her faithfulness to her husband. The first one is she did not try to hide the fact that she had intervened on his behalf. He might have gotten angry, but we saw previously she had done it not out of rebellion. She had done the intervention to save his neck. And then secondly, when she had a chance to let him die, she didn't. Even jerks need to be treated with dignity. She obviously cared for him in his dying days. And if that does not exemplify the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't know what does. Uh, My aunt's husband, um, you know, he was pretty harsh with her all the time, but particularly harsh when he was uh, drunk. But when God struck him with almost total paralysis... She loved him by God's grace and ministered to him, and my parents loved him by God's grace and ministered to him, and he came to Christ before he died. And the only way they knew is he could respond yes or no, just a slight squeeze of his hand. That's the only part of his body that he was able to, to move. Verse 38 doesn't ascribe the death to the stroke alone. It says, Then it happened about ten days later that the Lord struck Nabal and he died. It doesn't say she was wishing for his death, God sovereignly struck her. And I should point out that not all miserable marriages are allowed by God to end like this one did. <clears throat> but Paul does guarantee believers in 1 Corinthians ten thirteen that no matter how miserable our circumstances, God always makes a way of escape from our own sin that we might be able to bear up under the miserable circumstances. Now, obviously, we're not talking about physical abuse. Uh, or danger to life and limb, then you need to escape from the home, not just escape from your sin. But that's different, totally different question. But most Abigails don't have that choice. In any case, in Abigail we see that she needed grace, she had sufficient grace, and she sought to minister grace to her husband. And it does not appear that her husband ever did repent. But you know what? God has won husbands through the grace that they saw in their wives. It's exactly the promise that God gives in 1 Peter 3. And my aunt is testimony to the power of God's grace to triumph over an evil husband. Now, since I dealt with her marriage to David adequately in 2011, I'm not going to dig into it much today, but I will just say this was not a polygamous marriage because Michal, uh his first wife, had divorced her husband, and I can't... I, explained that before, why she probably felt she had to. But divorced her husband, married Palti, and God himself said that Palti was her husband. So that was a a true marriage. And so she would not have been able to come back to David, according to Deuteronomy 24. And it also means that David was free to marry Abigail. Because she was a Proverbs 31 woman, this was a marriage that enriched David in many ways. He was obviously enriched in the vast and properties that he inherited from Nabal. But I think the brief statement of verses 40 through 42 shows he was enriched in a good relationship with her as well. When the servants of David had come to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her saying, David sent us to you to ask you to become his wife. Then she arose, bowed her face to the earth and said, here is your maidservant, a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. So Abigail rose in haste and rode on a donkey attended by five of her maidens, and she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and so both of them were his wives. We aren't told when David married Ahinoam or why. I think this would have been a difficult burden for Abigail to uh, to bear. Uh, There's not a single polygamous marriage in the Bible that turned out well. Uh, You know, it's sad that We don't hear that her story turns out perfectly like all fairy tales do, but uh, God includes stories like this because they're true to life and it shows us God knows, God cares. But I'm sure that David sought to care for her. She definitely had it much better than under Nabal. Now, here's an interesting thing. She went with five maidens, not only as a sign of vast wealth, commentators say this was definitely, to have five maidens was a sign of vast wealth. In other words, she didn't need David. She didn't need his wealth. She didn't need his marriage. She could have continued on on her own, but also that she was willingly getting married. So it shows she has no insecurity or need whatsoever. She's making a statement. She's entering this marriage of her own free will. And again, it shows strength of character on her part. She is a strong woman. Now, we only have three other facts that we know about Abigail. First, she had a son by David whom they named Chiliab, 2 Samuel 3, verse 3, and according to 1 Chronicles 3, verse 1, they gave him a second name, Daniel. Or it's remotely possible that the first Chiliab died, and then she had a second son that they named Daniel. But I think most commentators say it's just two names for the same person. Second, chapter 30, verse 5, shows that David's two wives are now listed, with Ahinoam being first. Some people say that's favoritism. I just say, she was the first one to have a baby, and it's listing the children, the sons. That's all that it's about. Third, Ahinoam and Abigail were taken captive by the Philistines. David strengthened himself in the Lord, and with his men he chased down the Philistines, inflicted a slaughter, rescued the women and the children and of everyone, and so David was a protector. Now, we aren't told how she handled the kidnapping, or how she handled the second wife, we can only guess, but it illustrates to me life is not always peaches and cream. But Abigail is the type of person who could hold her head high anyway, and I think she's probably the type of person who could thrive. Let me conclude with two more admonitions from the life of Abigail. First, be careful what you wish for. There are many people who would love to be as wealthy as so-and-so. And frequently, this is because you don't know the pain that goes along with that apparently successful life. Behind many a happy, beautiful, and rich faith lies untold pain. So what I would encourage you to do is focus on what God wants you to do with your situation and seek to glorify God where you have been planted. Do not envy. It is a sin. Second, pray for the Abigails you know. They need it. And may God be pleased with our responses to this wonderful woman of faith. Amen. Father God, I thank you for the illustrations that you give in life, the lives of these women, some of whom uh, we can relate to and and the painful things that we see around us. And I pray that these women uh, that we have looked at would be an encouragement Uh, an encouragement to ministry, an encouragement to prayer, an encouragement to peacemaking in this case. And I pray, Father, that uh, as we uh, seek to put on uh, week by week uh, the principles that flow from your word, that we would be the stronger in our ministry for it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.